I'm John Wainwright, and this is the Cap Impact Podcast, a podcast by the Capital Center for Law and Policy at University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law. We are back from our brief break and diving into California's recent primary election. And if you listen to as many politics and news podcasts as I do, I'm sure you've heard all about California's top two primary and how it could have led to the possibility of Democratic candidates for Congress getting shut out of the general election in just over half a dozen or so congressional races. There's also talk of the Republican Party getting shut out of the race for governor. And ultimately, neither of those things happened. Democrats are fielding candidates in their key races in San Diego, Orange, Los Angeles counties, as well as parts of the Central Valley that they feared they might not have candidates in. And Republican John Cox will be facing off against Democrat and Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom in the race for governor. That is the end of us talking about the horse race today. Um, Instead, we're going to look at how the top two primary functions uh, when you compare it to primaries in other states, which are closed primaries. We're going to talk a little bit about how California got to having the top two primary in the first place. So for all that information, we're talking to McGeorge professor and elections expert Mary Beth Moylan. We'll also be talking with Democratic campaign consultant Brian Brokaw about how the top two primary has changed the way campaigns talk to voters. And if you're wondering who Brian Brokaw is, first off, he's not related to Tom Brokaw. Secondly, he is a campaign manager, consultant. He's managed and worked on some of the most high-profile statewide campaigns Uh, in California in the past decade. Most notably, he managed Kamala Harris's first attorney general campaign in 2010, which is one of, if not the closest attorney general race in California's history. On the ballot measure side, he managed the Yes on Prop 63 campaign in 2016 that was successful in legalizing recreational marijuana in California. And he's also currently working on Newsom's campaign for governor. We're going to get into those two candidate campaigns today in the podcast. So, Without further ado, let's dive right in. I'll be back with you at the end of the show to wrap things up, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. So we are here with McGeorge Professor of Law and Elections Expert Mary Beth Moylan to talk about the kind of the structure of the top two primary. And the first thing I want to ask is, what is it, and how does this differ from primaries in other states? So the background on primaries and kind of how we got to having this top two primary is that California, like most other states, used to have a closed primary system. In a closed primary system, each of the political parties allows people who are registered in their political party to vote in their primary election. And then out of those closed primaries, the parties have a standard bearer that represents that party in the general election. So basically, Democrats vote for Democrats, Republicans vote for Republicans, and then at the end of June 5th, the winners of those go on and go ahead to the November general. general election. Right. And under that system, too, not just the Democrats and the Republicans, but the Libertarians would have a candidate who they can put forward in the general election, the Peace and Freedom Party. Any ballot, the Green Party, any ballot qualified party in the state would get to have a representative in the general election in November. So most other states have that type of primary system in place. And of course, election law is largely left to the states in our country. We don't have a national election system that is universal across all states. Um, The 
the Constitution, the Elections Clause, allows for states to set up their own systems. So some states have caucuses, right? So that's that's Iowa another caucus the Iowa the, caucus, the very notable one. right, being the most well known. But it used to be that a lot more states had caucuses, and slowly across the country, um, states moved to having primary systems. So closed primary systems are the norm. That said, political parties have, over the decades, um, toyed with opening their primaries more. So you have variations of open primary systems in certain states. Um, California had that for the longest time. For, for a while, at least, you know, as a, a non-party voter or an independent voter, you could choose to take, say, like the Democratic Party's ballot. But those decisions are not made by the state so much as they're determined by the political parties. And okay. there's a case, Tastian versus Connecticut, a Supreme Court case, that held that it was up to the parties whether they wanted to invite in uh, independent voters into their primaries, that the political parties have associational rights and they can choose to associate with who they want to associate with. So in an open primary scenario, you could have independent voters um, voting in the, the primary of a certain political party. That California tried to adopt what's uh, called a blanket primary, it was Proposition 198 back in the early 90s. California voters adopted a blanket primary system, although it was called the open primary law. Okay. Let so me explain a blanket <laughs> primary. It's not as easy as it seems at first blush. So the blanket primary is a primary where regardless of party affiliation, regardless of your party registration, um, all the voters got to vote a single primary ballot. So Republicans, Democrats, Peace and Freedom, Green, everybody votes a single primary ballot, regardless of their party registration, um, and selected the top Democrat, the top Republican, the top Peace and Freedom, the top Green person would okay. all move on to the general election uh, ballot in November. The parties hated this. The voters passed it. The parties hated it. Why do you think the parties hated it? You lose so much control over who you can allow to vote for your candidates. Yeah, it's an invitation for for raiding another party's primary, essentially. If there's, if there's only one Democrat running, but there are several Republicans, the Democrats could just say, hey, let's all vote for the, the weaker Republican candidate to be the standard bearer for the Republican Party in the general election. So that was challenged, went all the way up to the Supreme Court, the California blanket primary law, and, um, and the court struck it down, said this is a violation of the political party's ability to choose their standard bearer. So we did not have the blanket primary, so we passed another law. In the meantime, Washington and famously Louisiana have these top two primary laws that passed constitutional muster because the top two vote-getters are going without regard to political party affiliation. So the argument is it doesn't offend the political party's standard-bearer argument, their associational rights, because it's just the top two regardless 
of political party. So two Democrats can advance, two Republicans can advance, or you could have one of each, or a green and a Democrat, Democrat, right? Any combination, any combination, and and the the primary then becomes not about choosing necessarily the political party's candidate, but rather it becomes about choosing the two individuals with the most support. So how did we get that here in California, where that move to the top two system? Well, like I said, it came as a result of our being told you can't do the blanket primary in the way that <laughs> people initially tried to do it. So Californians came back and said, okay, well, if we can't do it that way, we're going to do it the way Washington does it, and we're going to have a top two primary. And again, there's, there's been pressure, um, perceived pressure, to move to getting more moderate candidates, and the thought being that if candidates have more generalized appeal to voters, that they will they will be more moderate. They'll become more centrist. They'll try to appeal to a wider range of candidates. The political scientists would say the negative rub on primary elections is fewer people turn out for primaries, and the people who turn out are the most radical zealots of their various parties. So you get the the furthest left and the furthest right people turning out and defining who the the, the, pers- the, the standard, candidate is, yeah. the standard bearer is for that political party. And so they end up being more of the extremes of each party who pe- voters are then faced with choosing uh, from in the general election. And I can certainly see that definitely playing out in closed primaries. I feel like that was something that was sold to voters with the top two is that because there's this potential for a Democrat to vote for a Republican, say, or vice versa, that you would get more moderate candidates from either side. Has that seemed to be the case in California since switching over to the new primary system? I don't think it's necessarily ended up being the case in our statewide races. I think that in some of the in some of the legislative races and some of the assembly and state senate districts, that may uh, that impact may be happening because in a smaller district, appealing to the whole range to be able to move forward to the general election is a little easier. In a statewide race where we're dealing with the numbers of voters across the whole state, I don't know that it's actually had that effect. And in some ways, you know, when we when we saw, like, for example, in the 2016 election for U.S. Senate, and we had two Democrats, um, Kamala Harris and um, Loretta, Sanchez. Loretta Sanchez. And, you know, really, I don't think either one of them was particularly moderate, right, <laughs> who ended up with no moderate choice necessarily. They had differences, certainly personality differences, but in yeah. terms of their actual platforms, um, I don't think they diverged a whole lot. So you actually ended up losing an opportunity to have really a a very clear choice, at least on the policy front. Yeah. The personality front, different story. So this is, the other thing I want to get at is how this works legally. You've said that this passed muster constitutionally in Washington and Louisiana before California adopted it. How do you get around those associational rights that the parties have with the voters they want to have associating with them? So 
you get around the associational rights because the candidates are going forward as the top two vote getters. They're not going forward as a representative of their political party. And so the core associational rights that were objected to when we had the blanket primary were that that the candidates were still being identified as the Democratic candidate, the Republican candidate. And when you have voters from other political parties being the ones choosing the Democratic candidate, that's where the associational burden comes in. Here, where you have a situation where we just say the top vote getter, the top individual who happens to be a Democrat, the individual is saying, I'm a Democrat, but the the state system is saying it's just the top two vote getters. So okay. that's where the the legal constitutional disconnect comes. You're not forcing the Democratic Party to um, accept that person as their selection. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to explain this. Sure. So we're sitting down with Brian Brokaw today. Thank you for joining us in the studio today. Welcome. So you've worked on quite a few kind of big-time campaigns going back to Kamala Harris's attorney general campaign in 2010 and 2014. You've worked on her Senate race in 2016, and this year you're working on Gavin Newsom's campaign for governor. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how the top two primary has changed how campaigns talk to voters, um, seeing as you've been on campaigns that are on both sides of that. So looking back to 2010, the first election, the first run at AG with then District Attorney Harris, you're starting out the primary in a very crowded field of Democrats. You've got a former LA city attorney who had run the cycle before, and you've got three other assembly members in there, one of whom is a former military prosecutor. What did you do to help your candidate stand out in that field? So in the pre-top two days, it was somewhat of a simpler equation in that you had to just win your party's primary. Okay. Um, so, you know, while you would often look ahead to who your uh, general election opponent could be, if you're fortunate enough to win your primary, you really only had to focus about, in my case, the other towns in the race. Um, so, I mean, traditionally, that lends itself to candidates running to the left on the Democratic side, because the, the, the base of your party is who is most likely to turn out. In the, the 2010 race, while it was crowded, uh, Kamala Harris had a number of uh, advantages working for her. Uh, for example, she was the only uh, woman in the race uh, on the Democratic side, or the Republican side for that matter, and female voters turn out quite heavily in Democratic primaries and in general elections for that matter. She also was the only candidate of any real, uh, with any real base of support in the Bay Area, and why that is important is, I mean, just look at who our state's most prominent leaders have been over the last quarter century or longer, if you want to go back all the way to Pat Brown. And it's, it's, it's primarily people who have had uh, strong bases of support you know, in, in San Francisco or in some cases outside of San Francisco, but really San Francisco. Yeah. And Bay that's, Area votes. Exactly. And the Bay Area votes and the Bay Area votes uh, turns out in greater percentage than Southern California does in a primary. Um, which is counterintuitive when you think that when you think about the fact that you know LA, Southern California is really the population center of the state, but in a primary, Bay Area turns out in a higher percentage. So she had that 
going for her in, in 2010, which, among many other things, propelled her to a primary victory. Now, you mentioned this a little bit, which is that you only pay a little bit of attention to the people running on the Republican side of the ticket when you're in the primary. But how do you kind of strike that balance in the pre-top two world where you have to get through your closed party primary, but at the same time, you do have to somewhat keep an eye towards the general election and not go so far to the left that when you eventually win, you're not alienating some of those moderate voters that you'll need to beat. Yeah. And that, that's why you often hear the term pivot. You know, how does a how does a candidate pivot after a primary victory to a more general election or general election electorate friendly position? So that and and and, I'm, and that's just a, a common occurrence, uh, no matter what you know, whether you're talking about a state campaign in California or, or a presidential campaign for that matter. But you know, you for for one, your candidate needs to be true to his or her own uh, positions on issues of the day. But at the same time, you don't want to, you know, to pander so far uh, to, you know, bring out your base of support that you end up taking on a position that's just politically untenable in a general election. So, uh, you know, I don't ever recommend changing, you know, your positions from, you know, the primary to a general election. Everyone thinks back at the, you know, John Kerry campaign in 2004 with the, you know, the famous windsurfing ad, and, and he really, you know, the term flip-flop became uh, just part of the, the common vernacular. So you don't ever want to put yourself in that position. But the one thing you do see candidates do frequently is emphasize different sets of issues. And so I know we're going to talk about the, this current race, but you know, for example, I would be quite surprised if, if John Cox is talking about Donald Trump in a week from now like he was a week ago. And candidates have to you have to survive your primary, and if you're fortunate enough to make a pass there, then you have to start thinking about a general election electorate, which is different from the, the campaign that you've just been involved with. Okay. So once you get through that pivot, then how do you approach the general election differently, or do you not approach it too differently than you do your base of voters in the primary? Well, I mean, you have to, for one, you 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 have to you know dance with the the one who brought you right. So you you can't really turn your back on your supporters, uh, but at the same time, you have to look at how the electorate is going to change. You have higher turnouts uh, in a general election than you have in the primary. You have more middle-of-the-road voters. You have people who vote less frequently. So you have to just take a kind of a broader 30,000-foot view of the electorate and figure out you know, what those, and, and how do you figure out what the messages are. Well, you do polling. You uh, you have a general sense of you know what the, the issues are going to be for over the, the coming months. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it's a matter of, Making sure that your base stays with you, but then figuring out who are the the new pers- the universe of persuadable voters, and figuring out how you're going to um, target them as well. Okay, so that's obviously the old pre top two rules. Jumping ahead a little bit, I want to look at 2016, the Senate race. Now that top two is in effect at that point, and you've got a front runner candidate with Attorney General Harris. How do you come at this primary now? You're not an incumbent like you were in 2014. It's an open field. How do you approach that primary differently? Do you treat it like it's just you have two general election campaigns to go through, or is it a little different than that? So that was somewhat of a unique situation. I guess I want to caution against drawing any sort of one-size-fits-all lessons from races. I mean, One thing we're seeing is that every race has a different dynamic. 
and that's uh, you know it's a result of any number of different factors. So, you know, nothing I'm saying is is a you know a formula that can be applied to uh, you know the Feinstein race, for example, right now. I mean, there's just every every situation is different. In that particular case, what now Senator Harris benefited from the most, aside from the fact that she was you know the best and most qualified candidate, and all those other factors, is that she got in early and she was decisive. And I think that is something that we have seen even in this governor's race. The longer you wait before uh, getting in a race, before making a decision, uh, the harder it is for you to establish yourself as a candidate. You know, she waited really only a couple of days after Senator Barbara Boxer announced that she wasn't going to seek another term. And uh, she dove in head first and went right off to the races and got so far ahead of any potential would-be opponents that once uh, you know, a number of other potentially high-profile candidates did look uh, at the race, considered getting in, but you know, perhaps they saw what we saw, which was her electoral strength, or they thought it just wasn't worth the risk. Um, but you know, some of the potentially stronger opponents ended up not getting in the race. So, so yeah, and eventually Congresswoman Loretta Sanchez did get in a little bit late. She had some pretty high-profile stumbles right out of the gate. You know, they ended up, as you know, uh, both making the, the top two, but it was never really a, a competitive race um, for much of 2015 or 16. Did you at all, do you try at all to kind of put your thumb on the scale a little bit and try to get a certain opponent out of, you know, through the primaries you have a better, you increase your odds of winning in the general election or um, do you just focus more on making sure that voters know your candidate? Well, the best way to ensure success, in my humble opinion, is to run a very good campaign for your own candidate. And it helps to have a good candidate, helps to have a good campaign team and do all the things that go into winning, such as uh, you know, fundraising and building political support and you know, voter communication. You know, does every consultant look at potential opponents and say, boy, who is our dream opponent? Sure. I mean, I, I imagine the you know the Warriors would prefer to you know play the Kings as opposed to you know <laughs> the Cavs, right? But but um, but you can't you know you can't always. For one, it, it can be very difficult to try and manufacture uh, an outcome. You can get very easily distracted from doing your own job, which is to get your own candidate elected. Are there things you can do to you know help? increase the odds that you face, you know, an opponent or, or a type of opponent that you'd like to face? Yes, but don't think. I, we did see in this last uh, gubernatorial primary some campaigns trying to get a little cute, I thought, in how they were trying to impact other campaigns, and it doesn't always work. I'll come back to that in a little bit, but do you treat, a, do you treat the general election in a talk to, especially when it's a dem-on-dem general election? Do you treat that any differently than you would if it was a Demry general? Yes. Uh, I mean, again, it all, it all comes down to the electorate. So I, I imagine you're talking a little bit about 2016. Yeah, what, specifically you're looking at like Sanchez and Yeah, and, and, and Sanchez ran on a theory that you know, while Harris would, you know, would be viewed as the candidate of the left, she could, you know, her lane would be everyone to the right of her, so middle-of-the-road voters and Republicans, which, in theory, sounds plausible, but if you actually look back and at what happened, uh, you see that that wasn't really a path uh, for much of anything. And you know, the general election 
in that race almost much more closely mirrored uh, what a primary would look like, where you know the way to, to win a huge victory was to, to fire up the Democratic base. And by the way, Harris got many of the other voters that her opponent have been trying to target. At the same time, Republican voters, a large percentage of them, just didn't cast a vote at all. And that's uh, one major flaw in you know attempting to run to the right as a Democrat in a top two primary because Republican voters, even though they are a, they're literally the third party in California, you know, their base is still uh, very engaged and they do turn out and uh, they aren't going to vote for you if you have a D next to your name for the most part. Then looking at this election and again, working with the Newsom campaign, it was pretty clear that at least some of the groups supporting Newsom we're trying to put their thumb on the scale a little bit. You see the ads that you know are tying John Cox specifically to the NRA and Trump pre the Trump endorsement, and then doing that kind of like in a, in a comparative ad with then Gavin Newsom standing up to groups like the NRA. My thinking is, if you've got a front runner, why bother talking about another candidate when you could just be talking about yourself? Well, I mean, for one. Newsom was really talking about himself, and he was drawing contrasts with John Cox, who is Donald Trump's endorsed candidate, and those are very good issues for Newsom, for the Democratic base. At the same time, I should point out that every other campaign was trying to figure out how they could also play in this uh, really complex game of chess in which everyone was trying to figure out, you know, no, everyone knew they weren't going to, to take first place. Every single poll the last two plus years since I had Gavin Newsom in the lead. So the question was always going to be who is going to take that number two slot. Um, so we saw the Via the Ragosa campaign and the the independent expenditure campaign supporting him with you know, almost $20 million going after John Cox by trying to elevate Travis Allen. You had, I mean, you had John Chung and his supporters doing similar things. So everybody was, you know, it was a multi layered. A multi-dimensional game of chess that everyone was trying to play, and you know, what ended up really happening was what would have essentially happened if we were in a closed primary system, where the guy that got uh, the you know, consolidated Democratic base won, and, and the guy who got the Republicans won. So everybody played a lot of games, um, and I'm not sure how much impact any of that really had on the final result. Because it would seem like, given the results in 2016, Republicans just choosing not to cross party lines and vote, that it would seem like all this other gamesmanship to try to get a Republican into the number two spot, like that just seems like a waste of energy. I mean, was there at all like a concern that that maybe like a Villaraigosa or a Chung might be able to do what Sanchez couldn't, which was get some Republicans and moderate voters to cross over? Well, I mean, each of those two candidates, you're right, was, I mean, that was how they were essentially pitching themselves as viable candidates when most of the, the polling numbers showed that the, the pathway weren't really there for them. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have been a concern and, and you know, reduce was asked point blank in a debate, you know, <laughs> who would you rather face? But I mean, but for, I mean, honestly, I think for uh, the Newsom campaign's perspective, the way to fire up Democrats, the way to help people up and down the ticket is to campaign against the Republicans who are uh, supportive of Donald Trump, and, and that's and you know, John Cox being Donald Trump's preferred candidate, 
think that's really, in our opinion, the way to uh, energize Democrats in Afghanistan, rather than a sort of nasty Democrat versus Democrat civil war. I feel like, again, kind of the, what we saw, like, this kind of trust bring, it almost seemed, some of these ad levels seemed like they were swift voting John Foxy to try to get him into that number two spot. Is that new tactic a result, you think, of kind of changing strategies for campaigns to be more effective in the top two primary years? So, I mean, this was this was really the first, this was the first open governor's race under the top two. 2014 was a was a very different scenario. So yeah, this may be, yeah, this this may be a sign of what it's like in future years. I, you know, we saw the same thing happening at the congressional level and the legislative level, but especially at the congressional level where you had a multitude of candidates and you had, you know, in some instances, the state Democratic Party had a different endorsed candidate than the National Democrats, the DCCC. So it was not a, it was not unique to the gubernatorial race. We did see campaigns have to, you have to sometimes aim your fire above you at the same time as you're aiming your fire below you to make sure that the person on your heels doesn't overtake you. So I think one main takeaway is that the top two is going to, the top two primary is going to make campaigns far less predictable than they used to be. That, that upsets a lot of people, especially the angles of parties. But it also and it doesn't make it an easier one. It's becoming increasingly difficult to get good polling data too, just with the way. That's that's absolutely that's right. And and also just there's been far less public polling than there has been in the past. I mean, every campaign for the most part is still doing polling. But you're right, identifying and finding voters and doing polling is is hard now. Most professional pollsters still know how to do polling and, and can do it pretty well. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely makes campaigns much less predictable, which for people like me makes them actually more fun. Um, but it also is more frustrating. Job yeah, I suppose it's job security. At, at the same time, it keeps candidates on their toes. Um, it can be very confusing to voters, which is a downside. I, you know, some uh, campaigns, you know, would might be accused of engaging in political trickery, and uh, so voters also need to be more uh, aware and look at who is actually paying for certain ads. You know, some of the, I saw a lot of the mail pieces uh, from the, the independent expenditure supporting Villaraigosa, you know, promoting different Republicans, and you had to look very closely at the bottom to see that it was you know, paid for by uh, supporters of you know, one of the Democratic candidates. So, um, it, you know, voters need to, to pay close attention and, get it, and, and, you know, question what they see and hear and do their research as well. Are there any other kind of tactical shifts you think we're going to see now that campaigns are starting to feel out the top two primary system a little bit more? I mean, it is still really new. And, uh, I mean, it takes a lot more than just a couple of election cycles to to get your get a handle on you know, how things work. And I'm, I'm not sure if you're ever going to be able to say, okay, here's the tried and true way to win in a shop. To primary because every campaign is going to have uh, unique situations. There's going to be different numbers of candidates. Where you, there's a difference between uh, statewide electorate and district level races. So, you know, I, I think maybe uh, in the next decade we'll be able to look back and say, okay, so here are some trends that we've uh, you know, been able to extrapolate over the last decade. Now that this system's been in effect, assuming it is still in effect, which I believe it will be, but it's I think it's hard to at this point any definitive conclusions. We just know that it's created a lot of uncertainty and it has its it has 
some supporters and it probably has more detractors. But, you know, I, again, we'll, we'll look back after November and, and see if, um, you know, the, the, the people who were smart enough to navigate their way through June were also good enough to, to win November. Hi again, everyone. Thank you to Brian Brokaw and Professor Moylan again for taking the time to talk with us today. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please take the time to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And while you're at it, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, please take the time to subscribe. All of that's going to help other people find our show more easily. And for more content from Cap Impact, whether that's written, video, audio, please check out our blog. It is capimpactca.com, and that is updated every day. You can stay in touch with us. Let us know what you think about the show or any of the content that we're putting out there by commenting on any of the posts we have on the blog or on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, You just go and like Cap Impact on Facebook or follow at Cap impact ca on twitter or you can hit me up directly i'm on twitter at john underscore wainwright that's wainwright like the pitcher for the st louis cardinals or the musician rufus or the world war ii general last but not least thank you to the capital center for law and policy at mcgeorge school of law for making this podcast possible you can find the capital center online at go.mcgeorge.edu slash capital center and that is capital with an a Thanks for listening to today's show. Talk to you again next week.